So we're talking the armor of God, and it occurs to me as I'm singing and listening to that song, the armor of God's worth nothing without the name of Jesus. I mean, nothing. And, and the words to that song just, so well done in choosing that. I, you're really good at that, Deidre. Um The words of that song are so powerful when you think we're, we're, we're talking about how do we prepare for battle. But the single most important thing we can do is to speak the name of Jesus. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. We're going to find out today in our passage that, that what is the helmet of salvation? It's the Word of God. It's Jesus. It's speaking the name of Jesus. And so uh, Adam just said, today feels like a day for a miracle. I agree. If you need one, Jesus is your miracle. If, if you are stuck up against the wall, if you are trying to do something you can't get through, if you've got a problem you can't manage to find a way out of, Jesus is your answer. And that song says it, and, and the armor of God prepares us to deal with, with the battles that we're going to face in this world, but it's so easy to forget that what God gives us is Jesus. And so if you know him, if he's your personal Lord and Savior, speak the name of Jesus. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, that's the answer. Just speak the name of Jesus. Why study the armor of God? Because in Ephesians, Paul says this. If you're taking notes, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. God, we've been working to study the armor of God that you give us, God. You, you give us these pieces of spiritual battle dress to go into the world to fight your age-old enemy, the devil. And yet, none of that is worth much of anything if we don't believe in you and if we don't believe in Jesus. So God, thank you for him. Thank you for what he did for us. Thank you that when we speak the name of Jesus, we are, we are speaking a name that no force on earth, no force in the cosmos... No force anywhere, including the devil, can stand against. There is no power greater than Jesus and his name. And so as we look at this last part of the armor of God, help us to realize that it isn't just doing the right thing. It isn't reading and, and studying and memorizing scripture alone. We need to do it and trust in you. It isn't that we try to live lives and do the best that we can. We live lives trying to be more and more like Jesus as our Savior. So God, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you have for us so that we can truly understand how it is that you prepare us to live in this world that we find ourselves in. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the armor of God, it's the way that God has equipped and empowered. And you need to realize that, and I'm going to try to move because I know my man Quinn here is hiding me from some of you. The armor of God is the way that God has equipped and empowered you in the battle that every Christian faces against the enemy of God, the age-old enemy of God. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He showed up in, in a different form, but he was there. And all along, his tactics are the same. He, he wants to get us separated from God. He wants us to have some sort of a mental, emotional, spiritual, physical break between us and our relationship with God. The battle, ultimately, because we know the war has been won by God. We've said that every week. 
The war has been won. God has won the war against evil with Jesus on the cross and when he raised him from the grave. So now the enemy keeps fighting. The devil keeps fighting the battle for the same prize. And because he can't beat God completely, what he wants to do is to tear apart God's heart. He wants to, he wants to get at what matters most to God. He wants your soul. He wants your attention. He wants your affection. He wants your thinking and your time. He wants your money. He wants all the best of you to go to him at the very least, not to go to God. So Quinn here is finally dressed in the full armor of God. He's finally dressed in this Roman soldier's gear that prepares him for battle. But for us, there's a much greater spiritual meaning for this. Like him, who's got to decide, Quinn and every Roman soldier had to wake up in the morning and put on his armor to be ready against whatever enemy he might face. You and I need to do the same thing. We need to read. We need to do our best to understand and to put on the armor for ourselves. It isn't that just we wake up in the morning and we say, well, I believe in Jesus and so I'm okay. And, and so often the church has taught us that. I got baptized when I was a kid. I'm going to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that. Because the armor of God is in the Bible doesn't mean that you're protected by it. We have to do something about it. So let's take a look at the last two pieces of God's suit of armor for us in Scripture. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 16, says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And who is the Word of God? Jesus is the Word. We understand it as the Bible, but the Bible comes alive, comes alive through Jesus. Do you know what the number one battleground that Satan uses to get at you? He doesn't go straight for your heart. We talked about the breastplate of righteousness last week. He doesn't go straight for your heart. We're slow to give that away. We're cynical, skeptical people. We hold on to our emotions sometimes real closely. But you know what his number one battleground is? The number one forefront that he attacks you is your mind because he can do that so subtly he can do that through things that you seek out and choose to invest your time and energy in satan's battleground that he is trying to attack you with more often than not is your mind your mind my mind the mind of our children the mind of our leaders Satan goes after our minds because if he can capture and develop a stronghold, which we have to give him in our minds, he can get all the rest of us to follow. Second Corinthians 11:3 says, I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a, spe- a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul says, I'm afraid just the way Eve was distracted that you're going to be distracted. If we're not focusing on Jesus, then all the other stuff that this armor is meant to protect us from really doesn't do us any good because Satan can sneak in in the most subtle of ways. Ephesians 4.27 says that we're supposed to give the devil no opportunity. So what's the helmet of salvation about? The helmet of salvation represents our guard against mental attacks. And here's the thing. It isn't, it isn't for, for folks who are weak. It isn't for folks who aren't serious enough or aren't sincere enough or committed enough. Who needs the helmet of salvation? Every one of us does. The moment that you're conscious, Satan starts prying and beginning to attack. The moment you turn on the TV or open a magazine or a newspaper, turn on the radio, whatever it is that you do, 
He uses all these things, either directly or indirectly, to work his way into our minds. And it seems like, well, that that can't be that big a deal. How tough is it, right? (laughs) You go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve knew what God wanted because God was there telling them himself. And yet he got into their minds. The enemy of God got into their minds. That's why God gives us the helmet of salvation. It might be the easiest piece of all of the battle dress, the armor of God, for us to understand because we have direct context in our world. We don't have to try to translate it. Not many people carry swords anymore, but we've got other weapons that we carry. Well, we don't really have breastplates, but I suppose you could think of a catcher in baseball or something. But a helmet of salvation, we can understand that. We can understand it in our world. Think about a modern motorcycle helmet. Even if you don't ride motorcycles, you've seen them. Think about a football helmet. Think about a hockey helmet or a a biking helmet or a ski snowboard helmet. They've got some things in common. One of the things they have is they've all got this extremely hard, durable exterior. Except those goofy things the NFL came out with earlier this year. They've got this hard exterior that stops anything from breaking through into the soft, cushioned, padded part on the inside. It's usually a two-part thing. And the purpose of a helmet is to keep the head and the brain and ultimately our mind safe and cushioned and to absorb any forceful impact that might come from the outside. Now, before we look at the obvious, the helmet, we've got to pay attention to the type of helmet. Because Paul's really clear. Paul's very specific with the type of helmet. He said it's the helmet of salvation. That's a huge clue as to what it does. So what's salvation? If you're a note taker, here's something for you to take a note on. Salvation to a Christian is the sure and certain knowledge that we have been saved from the death and the destruction that our sin leads to. Salvation is the sure and certain knowledge that we have been saved from the death and destruction that our sin leads to because of Jesus. It's not anything that we do. It's because of Jesus that we're saved. But salvation isn't a singular event. It isn't a one-time thing. It it saddens me when people say, I was baptized, so I'm okay. Okay, you were obedient to one of Jesus' commands. There's a lot more to it than that. There's actually four ways, at least, that we talk about salvation. The first use of salvation describes when we were saved, the event or the moment of our salvation. Uh, our, our kids one time interviewed at a Christian school and they asked Kirsten, well, tell us about the day that you were saved and tell us about the day of your sanctification. And I was impressed. She was young. She could have a great conversation about both of those. But we talk about salvation as the day we were saved. It, it's, it's the one part of salvation that goes on for all of eternity. And that's where we put our hope. That's where our hope comes from. It's an event that lives on. It happens in a moment, but it lives on for eternity. If you're a fan, if you ever watched the old movie Sandlot, how long is eternity? It's for, help me out, forever. It's a very long time. That one moment that you say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I submit all of me to you. I want to live my life for you. That moment of salvation where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you and Jesus' death and resurrection becomes real for you, that moment goes on forever. It is a gift that is eternal, pure and simple. It's a gift that God gives us that lasts forever. Ephesians 2.8 says, "For For by grace you've been saved through faith. 
This not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That salvation doesn't come because you did something right. It's because of what Jesus, it's because of what Jesus did for you. Titus 3 5 says, He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a gift given to us that forever that we get to begin living in isn't about us at all. It's about Jesus and what he did for us. The second use of salvation, we talk about being saved. There's that moment that we were saved, then we talked about being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. People who make fun of you for what you believe, for your faith, for going to church, they think it's ridiculous. The Bible talks about that. The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So salvation then isn't just a destination. Salvation is a journey. And it's a journey that begins in that moment that we spend the rest of our lives here on earth as a Christian moving our way into. The third use is that we work out our salvation. As we're on that journey, we work on our salvation. Paul says very clearly, Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, which we should do, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do we work out our salvation? With fear and trembling through prayer? Through study of God's Word? Through being involved with a group of believers in a, in a church community on Sunday morning? We have life groups around here. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that we work out our salvation by growing in our faith. Then the fourth use of salvation, it's that future promise that we have, knowing that we will be saved. That when that day comes that our life on this earth ends, and that journey of working it out is over, we know that we can trust in Jesus, that we will be saved. It's that future promise of certainty. Romans thirteen eleven. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What that means is that when you first put your faith in Jesus, you're closer to your death now than you were then. You're closer to that moment of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, For God hasn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about the day of our salvation. Well, the day of our salvation is yet to come when we use it in this sense. For some of us, this day is close. We're going to spend time and gather as a community with a bunch of family and friends of one of our own today, and it appears that her day is close. But Laura knows that her salvation is near. She knows where she's going, and she knows who's going to welcome her home. For others, this day of salvation is decades away. Haven't even thought about it. You're young enough yet, you don't even worry about it. Some of us that just celebrated a birthday realize we're closer than we've ever been. That's not a bad thing. Because when we know Jesus, when we've accepted Him as our Savior, that day of salvation is a day to celebrate. But whatever God's chosen to you, for you, whatever the time frame, the, the timeline that God has you on, that day of your salvation is a promise for you, written in the redeeming blood of Jesus as your Savior. Nothing you have to worry about, nothing you have to second guess, nothing you have to wonder, what else do I have to do? 
That's a promise written in the redeeming blood of Jesus. So what about you? What about your salvation? Do you know that you've been saved by the blood of Jesus? Do you know where you're going when this life is over? Salvation can be a very comforting word or it can be a very confusing word depending on where you are in your salvation. If you're looking for something from this world to save you, you might feel better for the moment, but the day is going to come when you're going to wish that you had listened. Are you living in your salvation? Are you working out your salvation confident in your eternity? Or are you living with this fear of death because you just don't know where you're going to go or what's going to happen to you? In almost 25 years of ministry, there's two kinds of people that I've sat on uh, with them, next to them on their deathbed. Those who know that they're going to heaven. The calm, the peace, the joy in those rooms is, is almost impossible to describe. And then there's the people who are afraid. The people who don't know where they're going because they either don't believe in Jesus or they've chosen to reject and live their life apart from him. And there's fear. Which one are you? Where are you in your salvation? If you're saved, how long have you known you were saved? A month? A year? Fifty years? Maybe you're still wondering. Maybe you, you don't know whether you're actually there or not. It's pretty simple. We've got folks that uh, wherever there's a light that says prayer, we've got folks that would love to visit with you about that. They'd love to pray with you and to help you walk out of here today knowing that your salvation is secure. Maybe you've walked with Jesus your whole life as you remember. What an awesome thing to have the assurance of salvation as a constant companion. If you're not saved, how long are you going to have to think about it? How much more information and evidence do you need to hear? How much do you need to experience in order to continue living with a lack of salvation? Now, if you're one of those folks that says, you know what, I'm gathering information. I think there's a lot of good stuff going on out there. I hear a lot of good things. A lot of good people have lived and written good books. I'm not ready to make a decision for Jesus yet. You need to realize that not making a decision is making a decision against him. Because we have to choose to believe in Jesus as our Savior. To, make, to not make a decision for Jesus by accepting his free gift of salvation is still a decision. It's a decision not to willingly choose Jesus. I hear people all the time, way too often, say, you know what, I'm getting close, but I'm not there yet. I'll, I'll get there before I die. I'll, I think that I'm just going to live a little bit on my own terms now. Well, I'm just curious about how do you know how long you're going to live? And it turns out with salvation, a lot of people play the odds and hope for the best. But, but as Christians, we spend our lives, once our salvation is secure, working out our sal salvation in the full realization of what it means not to be saved. That there is another alternative. Why do we do it in fear and trembling? Paul talks about that. Because now we understand how wickedly close to eternal destruction we really were. We realize that when we were living for ourselves, we were so close to spending an eternity outside the presence of God. No hope, no love, no light, nothing. Why should we be concerned about the salvation of others? Pretty simple. Because if heaven is an eternal home for those who believe, hell is the eternal home for those who choose not to. And is there anybody that you know, is there anybody that you dislike so much that you really want to see them go to hell? Is there anyone who your hatred burns so hot for that the only thing that you can imagine is right for them 
Is an eternity in hell? I really doubt it. That's why it's so important for us as a church to share the good news of Jesus with anyone and everyone that will listen. Because when we choose to live our life apart from God, we choose to spend our eternity separated from hope and love and peace. And an eternity in hell goes on forever. That's a long time. Back to the helmet. Helmets are oftentimes the most overlooked piece of modern safety equipment. Because you know what? Sometimes young people, even as not-so-young people, think it doesn't look cool to wear a helmet. I'd rather be out in that motorcycle not wearing my helmet. I like to feel the wind through my hair. I can imagine it anyway. When a motorcycle rider or a bicyclist or a skateboarder or a skier or a snowboarder decides a helmet isn't cool, they don't want to be seen with one. Fortunately, that's all changing and helmets are becoming cool. They're willingly taking the risk, just like what we do with our salvation, They're willingly taking the risk that if something goes not according to plan, somehow, probably miraculously, they're going to be okay no matter how bad the accident is. When a person wipes out at any speed at all, there really isn't much protection in our hands or our arms or our elbows or anything else if we choose not to be protected by a helmet. There's really nothing that can take the place of a helmet to protect our minds. I think back to and I were talking to four, maybe five years ago now, I don't know. It was before the whole pandemic. And our daughter, Asta, had become interested in this young man. His name was Jordan. He was a cool kid, good athlete. We all decided, Deidre and I did, that we're going to be cool. We're going to go to uh, Kimball, to Powder Ridge, and we're going to go skiing while the kids went snowboarding. See, I tried snowboarding, and I knew that my head could not survive another one of those wipeouts. It was cold, and it hadn't snowed in a while, and everything was icy. And quite frankly, I'd rather face that on skis than on my complete inability to snowboard. And so we got to the top of the mountain, such as it is, and Jordan looks down, and he goes, I'm going to take this jump because I think I can get going really fast today. I'm going to take this jump, and this is going to be cool. So we all stood at the top of this thing that just kind of went straight down, and, and then about a football field away, this slope kind of went like this, straight up in the air, and so down he went. None of this back-and-forth stuff. He just bombed that baby, man. He went flying. He got air like I've never seen anybody outside of television get air before. It was impressive. And we didn't see him. So I kind of scooted over this way and got to see the bottom of the jump. I still don't see him. Austin goes, I think there's a problem. Nah, he'll be okay. He must have known there's a problem. So down we went. There's Jordan. No blood. Laying on his back, completely quiet, his helmet shattered in pieces spread over 30 feet around him. And there was a kid that said, I saw him fall. I've never seen anybody die before. Wow. Get to the ski patrol. Ski patrol was awesome. They picked him up. They take him to the chalet. There was somebody, literally, we're laying there, and they, they told us that with head injuries, you've got this golden hour. So they were focusing on him. There was somebody else that literally had a bone from their leg sticking through their ski pants. That person was on their own. They were dealing with the guy with the head injury. So we wait for the ambulance, and turns out you can't actually follow an ambulance too closely when you're concerned. We found out that they'll tell you that that's not what they want you to do. Get to the ER in St. Cloud, and the doctor takes a scan, calls his mom. His, his mom shows up, and they're taking scans, and they're doing tests and everything. 
And it seems that he's actually okay. And, and this doctor looks at him, and it was fun because he's got this kind of concussion brain going on, right? Which isn't funny, but it was, I mean, it's funny now, it wasn't funny then. He's got this concussion brain going on, and the doctor goes, you know, it was that helmet that saved your life because we see a lot of these injuries, they don't usually end like this. It was that helmet that saved your life. And Jordan looks at him and goes, and because Jesus loves me. <laughs> and we all start laughing, and we're thinking, how true is that God used that helmet that completely was destroyed in this accident? And there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with him. He, he walked, literally walked away from that. The same as he started. And yeah, Jordan, it's because Jesus loves you, but Jesus loves you too. And God gives us this helmet of salvation that when we hit those jumps and we have those wipeouts in life, that our minds can be protected too. So that statement of his, because Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. And you need to remember that. Right there, as I'm getting this ready, I realize that's a helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The helmet that blew itself to pieces, saving his brain, and the sword that told that unbelieving doctor, Jesus loves me. Truer words couldn't be spoken. See, God wants to protect your brain. He wants to protect your mind. He wants to protect your thoughts. But we can't do it if we don't put on that helmet by going through a practice of prayer and Bible study using the tools and the resources that God gives us. Satan works overtime trying to defeat you by winning the battle for your mind. If he can steal your thoughts away from God, it's a real simple thing to steal your heart away from God. Romans 8.3 says, In all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who loves us? Jesus loves us. God loves us so much he sent his only son. And then we got the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon in the armor of God. Everything else is defensive protect us. The sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon, and it has nothing to do with us. Because Paul says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And other than us knowing it and reading it and trusting it, it has nothing to do with us. It's like Jordan having only one thing that he could really come up with. And because Jesus loves me. Yes, he does. The sword of the Spirit is as simple as that. When Satan tempted Jesus, the Holy Spirit brought Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And Jesus fasted. After 40 days, he was hungry, thirsty, and tired. And that was the point that Satan came to him and began to tempt him. When Jesus was at his physical and mental weakest, was when that wimp, the devil, came to tempt him. He didn't tempt Jesus when he was at his strongest point. He came to tempt him when he was at his weakest point. And he attacked Jesus. And he even used Scripture against Jesus. Just because Satan knows what the Bible says doesn't mean he uses it correctly. Doesn't mean that he even believes it. He just uses it as a tool against us. There's people who do the same thing. They weaponize God's Word against other people. They weaponize words of Scripture against us in order to get into our heads to get us to doubt our salvation. That's what the helmet is for. That is not what the sword is for. Now, Jesus could have defeated him with a well-thought-out argument. 
He could have defeated him with his, his power and his position. He could have corrected him for, for saying, you know, you're not even quoting Scripture right. You're taking it out of context and you're trying to use it against me. But he didn't do any of that. All Jesus did was to recite God's Word. He could have had this incredible argument. I would love to have read that. But instead, Jesus used this as what my wise father would call a teachable moment. Not only did Jesus shut Satan down, but in the same breath, he taught you and I how to handle Satan's temptations. There's nothing that we can do that's going to be greater or more powerful than what Jesus did. Not how spiritual we are or how committed we are or how faithful we think we are. Not because of how many Bible verses you've got memorized. Not because of any of that stuff. Because Satan's just going to poke holes in that arrogance of ours. No, we use God's word against the enemy. See, when Satan hit Jesus, even using scripture, Jesus responded three ways in a row the same way. For it is written. Jesus went back to God's word himself. He used that same sword of the spirit that God gives us to use for our own. The word of God. And then Jesus said, be gone. He had had enough of them. It was over. And Satan left Jesus alone. The only thing that you're going to be able to do to defeat the devil <laughs> is the Word of God and then the name of Jesus. Jesus didn't try to defeat him with his own faithfulness or goodness or superiority the way we try to do. He defeated him by repeating the Word of God. And Satan left. Now you might be thinking, that's fine. I've tried to memorize. I can't memorize anything. Maybe you don't have time. Maybe your brain doesn't work that way. I understand. I do a lot of reading. I have a hard time memorizing. I was thinking the other day, I've been in ministry for 25 years, 27 if you count seminary as ministry, and I haven't memorized nearly as much scripture as other people I know. I think, wow, I've wasted those years. It hasn't been that I haven't tried. It's just, for whatever reason, it doesn't stick the way I wish it would. I'm not great at it. But what I am a believer in is reading God's Word. And I trust that God will return His Word to me when it's appropriate if I've spent my time reading it. And He'll do the same for you. Memorizing is great, but not everybody can do it. But we can read. We can invest ourselves in reading God's Word. We can invest ourselves into sharpening that sword of the Spirit. Philippians 4 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard will, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Maybe you think, I, I don't need to really worry about Satan. He's going to leave me alone. I'm not a very big deal. He's not coming after me. My mind's okay. Fair question. Well, let me ask you something. You ever laid awake at night wondering if you were good enough? Ever laid awake wondering if you were able to fix the situation or solve the problem? Ever laid awake wondering about how you were going to get through a financial crisis? Ever laid awake worrying about your job and whether you should stay or go or where you were going to find one? All of those kind of end up in the same thing, and what we start to wonder is, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. Other people are better off than I am. I, I'm not good enough. That's Satan telling you that. Things like you're not smart enough, you're too fat, you're not pretty enough, you're not handsome enough, you're not talented enough, things like that. Things like you aren't rich enough or successful enough or you should be further on in your career or your house isn't pretty enough or new enough or big enough. There's a million things that Satan will try to throw at you and I. To break our minds. 
And it all starts with getting us to doubt ourselves. Remember, Satan's a liar. He doesn't want you thinking positively about yourself. He doesn't want you thinking about God. So he gets you to doubt. But those things, they're neither important nor are they true. And Satan uses doubt and distraction as a stronghold against us. So I thought a lot about this this week before I'm about to make this statement, but here it is. Whatever it is that you choose to invest your mental energy in, watching or reading or thinking about, that's greater than the time that you spend praying in the Bible is a stronghold for Satan. Whatever you invest your time in, whatever you do that absorbs your thoughts, captures your thinking, Anything that is more than what you spend time praying or studying God's Word is a stronghold that Satan will work at, use against you. If you have trouble sleeping, lie awake, your mind races a million miles an hour, you worry, your heart's flying over things that stress you out. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but what does Satan do? He comes after us in our weak moments. Where are some of our weakest moments when we're trying to sleep, when it's quiet at night and there's no other distractions around? Satan shows up just like he did when he attacked Jesus. And what does he do? The very same thing he did with Adam and Eve. He gets you to doubt. He plants doubt in your minds because here's the thing. If he can get you to doubt yourself, he can get you to doubt God's love for you. You're not good enough. You know what? Your sin is more than what Jesus can cover. God isn't going to pay attention to somebody like you. You had your chance and you blew it. That's the kind of thoughts he puts in our heads. What he really wants you to do is to not believe or trust in your salvation in Jesus by saying you're not good enough. See, Satan wants you to think that your choices, your life, your mistakes, your sin is too great for Jesus to love you through. And when you doubt yourself, you begin to doubt your Creator and your Savior. And we need that helmet of salvation and that sword of the Spirit that is the Word of, the God, Word of God to combat Him. Last week we learned that for all of us who are in Christ, who have accepted His free gift of salvation, we have become the righteousness of God. So we did this last week. I want you to do it today. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, now this isn't because of you. This is because of Him. Take this piece of Scripture and own it. Will you please? I'm the righteousness of God. I am... The righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. You speak the name of Jesus into this world, into the enemy's lies. And if you truly believe that because of Jesus, because of that name, that you're the righteousness of God, there's nothing he can do to you. And just like Jesus, you can say, Satan, be gone. And then your thoughts you get to fill with whatever you choose. Conversation with God, Scripture, so go back again and ask then, if you're the righteousness of God, where do you put the trust for your salvation? See, the armor of God is what God gives us to live the life that Jesus gives us once we become saved. See, Satan is battling for your soul. That's what he wants. He's a formidable, formidable opponent, but God says in Isaiah 54:17, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me to come, uh, declares the Lord. God will set the record straight. You don't have to. You just have to be faithful. But if you're not prepared for battle through prayer and through studying God's Word, if you're not dressed in the armor, that you're fi- then you're fighting a battle that you cannot win on your own. But when you trust in Jesus, God's already won that war. Every service that started again today, 
we talk about the same three things. Every service we begin with the same three things. Bible, prayer, and worship. We've done it for 12 years. It's a reminder to you that these are our priorities, and this is a promise that we'll always deliver on on Sunday morning to the best of our abilities. But it goes beyond that. There are priorities that you can take home with you. You can take home with you from this place, and you can put into practice every day of your life. They're a part of focusing on God and putting on the full armor of God. Prayer, Scripture, and worship. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Not even the devil can defeat you when God is for you. The full armor of God is nothing less than dressing in God's best to live for Jesus. The helmet, the breastplate, the shoes, the belt, the shield, and the sword. If we focus on those things, there's, there's nothing in the world. There's, there's no part of us that Satan can any longer attack. God's given us everything that we need. We just have to accept them and use them. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thank you for the full armor of God. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be your people in this place, to study, to learn, and to know what, what the armor is that you give to us. Thank you, God, that you don't want us to be out there in the world on our own. You want us to be out there in the world protected by you, by Jesus. Our salvation secure, our future absolutely without question. God, thank you. For anyone who doesn't have that, that security, that doesn't have an assurance of their salvation, of their forever, God, I pray that you would move in their hearts and their minds through your Holy Spirit this morning, that they would just be willing to be so brave as to say, help. Help me. Help me, Jesus, and then come and talk to somebody here and say, what do I do now? Because, God, we are here, we exist in order to help you Assure the salvation of every person that we encounter through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for the incredible opportunity to share that message. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Helmet of salvation protects your mind. You set the strongholds in your mind that become the actions of your life. They don't happen to you. You set them. You make the decision about what's important. You set and protect the strongholds. Neither those strongholds are a fortress of the kingdom of God or those strongholds are things that Satan uses to turn temptation into sin. But you get to set them. Make them Jesus. By repeating his name, by speaking his name, by reading his word, and by living for him. Just go out this week and speak the name of Jesus. You'll be amazed at what it does to your attitude and to your life and to your witness to the people around you.